This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your tome host, Jeff Greiner. In this episode, number 355, we are going to escape from the Underdark and then go back to fight some demon lords. Again! As we re-examine Out of the Abyss. Uh, so, how do I have a re-examination of Out of the Abyss that's complete and thorough and meaningful when it's just me and I've only run it once? Because it's not just me. I am here with a fantastic couple of guests. First up, we have our very own social media manager, is Ismail Alvarez-ish. Tell us about your experience running Out of the Abyss. Uh, yeah, Out of the Abyss was actually one of the first hardcover adventures that I had bought for uh, D&D way back when, in the mythical time of, like, I want to say it was 2015 when it was finally released. It, it was, yeah. And, uh, like, I had so few D&D uh, books, and I um, was I, ha- I didn't have a chance to run 5th edition at that point, so I literally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to just immerse myself in this. And I read it cover to cover, which that's the only one that I've done ever. Uh, but uh, since then, I have run it. Uh, it's going to sound silly. I've run it two and a half times to completion because one of them we had to start over um, <laughs> halfway through. So I'm going to count that as half. And then I'm, I'm running it a third time uh, for a new group, and I can talk about that later. But basically, I've, it's the one. It's the one I've run the most. It's the one I'm most familiar with. It's the one I kind of have steeped myself in. So you've run it two and a half plus half times. Uh, run it uh, that many times. Yeah. <laughs> two one and a half plus. Like yeah, plus one, one would think that two and a half plus half would equal three, but in this case, it doesn't. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Well, and honestly, um, hearing you say that you've run it three to four times uh, is not that ridiculous when you also tell me you're running like nine games a week. So, Yeah, it's uh, it's not surprising that I'm just kind of starting to recycle things right. now <laughs> and uh, finding new and different ways to kind of integrate other, other hard books and whatnot. But um, yeah, I call that the Jeff Greiner method is just taking like two different adventures, smushing them <laughs> together, making it new somehow. There you go. Nice. Uh, And then also joining us is Patrick Strauss, who comes to us uh, from a mutual on Twitter. Uh, I asked uh, the internet who who had some really interesting thoughts on Out of the Abyss, and and Patrick uh, came to my attention. Uh, By way of introduction, he has a cat that might interrupt uh, for those on the stream. He used to stream on Twitch, but now he's too busy working with horses. Uh, So Patrick... Tell us about your experience with Out of the Abyss. It's it's a little similar because Out of the Abyss was my first uh, hardcover adventure for not only 5th edition, but for any edition of D&D. Um, it, it, was, it was so enthralling that my previous job was working at Panera Bread. And I got to go train some new employees. They do something fancy when they open a new you know, restaurant. They like get uh, trainers to go in a hotel. And I wanted to play it so bad, 
but there wasn't a game. St- my my local game store is all the way in another state, so I <laughs> I commandeered the hotel's printer and I printed the entirety of all three books after a friend loaned them to me to scan them. I'm a naughty boy. I'm sorry. Me back to my early twenties with uh, third edition, Mm -hmm. but uh, I won't say anything more to incriminate myself. I mean, I gotta, I gotta go all the way back to second edition, but yeah, (laughs) I'm the old man of the group tonight. So, so, uh, but oh, yeah, I assume uh, I assume that you've come around and you are a full financial supporter of D anD D at this point. Oh, absolutely! Like <laughs> after after I was able to like just study, because I, I put them in binders. Mm-hmm. Like these poor these poor people in the hotel watched me kill their printer, <laughs> watched me thumb uh, do the little hole puncher, put them in giant binders, and. By the time I got my actual copies uh, legally and with financial gratitude, um, I, I had Out of the Abyss as well uh, as the main three core books, and I'm, I'm all the more happy for it. Okay. And so what's your, what's your experience actually running Out of the Abyss then? Out of the Abyss has been uh, run about three. I've never finished it. Ooh. I've never made it to the actual final uh, battle. Mm-hmm. I've made it about two thirds of the way twice, and there was a third group I played it with uh, and streamed a majority of it. Um, but it was a very different approach, and I'll probably mm-hmm. talk about that uh, later. How I sort of fiddled with the whole concept of Out of the Abyss and the characters that are in it. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to, to hearing about that. Um, I think there's there are plenty of things that can be fiddled, um, to borrow your word. So, <laughs> so uh, as for me, I've run the adventure once, um, and I've talked for those who who are regular listeners of the show. Um, you you would have heard of my big giant mashup campaign, the one that uh, Ish earlier referred to, where I mashed up um, uh, this adventure. Princes of the Apocalypse, The Rod of Seven Parts from 2nd Edition, and a whole bunch of homebrew to fill in the gaps uh, into one campaign. Uh, and it was my last campaign when I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, before moving to Indiana. So, um, so yeah, I had one big run through, but we ran through. I mean, we went beginning to end uh, on the whole thing. So um, so I've, I've seen it all uh, <laughs> that the adventure – well – I've seen most of it, I, I should say. I actually didn't play, like, the first section. I didn't do the Escape from Valve piece because I – we started actually with uh, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. So you can you, – you all can fill in the gaps on that. So I'm calling blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, I finished it though. Yeah. <laughs> I did. You skipped, you skipped the, the, the syllabus – yeah. <laughs> where it introduces the class and everything. But right, I skipped the syllabus, as long as but I passed the, the final. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Out of the Abyss is the third storyline published by Wizards of the Coast after 5th edition D&D. Uh, it was written in partnership with the wonderful folks over at Green Ronin and was described at the time of release by some of the uh, designers as D&D on hard mode. Uh, although... Now that we've gotten further into the edition, 
I don't know that that description actually stands up, and we can talk a little bit about that if we want to. Uh, it involves escaping the drow in the Underdark, being chased by those drow uh, as you look for a way out and explore different unique locations uh, down there in the tunnels. Uh, you find out that demon lords are running amok, you get out of the Underdark, and then you're drafted to go back into the Underdark to deal with said demon lords. Uh, and then it concludes in a, a massive battle royale. Is that a... A quick elevator pitch summary that that works for the adventure. Did I miss anything Perfect. important? Um, uh, no, not as covered elevator. a lot of avenues. Okay, yeah. Oh, okay. and they stole the drow stole all their all your stuff in the first chapter, which so. I think is why they called it D and D on hard mode because you're starting off, you know, naked and alone in the underdark. So. There's that one, there's a second or first. It was like Masters of the Slave Den or something like that. Mm. That uh, that did the same thing. In an earlier edition of D anD. If there is not an adventure exactly. that I ever owned, so I don't mm. know. But um, the concept of forcing players to. Oh. I think this was the the first time they had done it in a uh, fifth edition to sort of encourage people right. to a different start than a tavern, I guess. Right. Well, and it's interesting because, and we'll talk again. We'll talk about it in a second. But uh, I, I kind of talked about how I'm not sure that this being D anD D on hard mode really stood up. I don't know that it really stood up at the time because the opening of Tyranny of Dragons is just ridiculously difficult. <laughs> that that in greenest, uh, you know, I mean, you're level one and a, and a blue dragon shows up, and you know, uh, and you go through fight after fight after fight without a chance to rest. Um, so, fifth edition for low level characters is always D and D on hard mode in many ways because first level characters are very squishy. Uh, but before we dig in too far and talk about all of that, I do want to remind people that if you want to support the show, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the tome show. Uh, I've stopped seeking sponsors for the show for quite a while now, although sometimes they still seek me out. Uh, but we have a great group of supporters that keep the show going and help me pay the bills, like Doug Palmer, Gene Crane, Hyperlexic, James D'Alessio, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, Michael Harrison, and new patrons like Scipio202 and Dave Rosser Jr. All right, so we've all run out of the abyss. How did it run? What was our experience with it? Um, how did it go, generally speaking? Ish would like to go first. Sure. Um, so, the being like being practically the first thing I ever ran for Fifth uh, Edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, I read the hell out of it. I went online and and kind of did some prep to figure out how to run it. Um, I understood that there was going to be a lot of uh, what I call DM overhead because there are so many NPCs to keep track of. Um. And my first instinct was to kind of try and truncate all of that and just be like, okay, so instead of having another seven to eight initiative counts that I'm going to have mm-hmm. to deal with, like we're going to we're going to try and turn these guys into like helpers, even during combat, like they might do a helper action, whether that's just dealing a little bit of damage or like giving someone advantage or something like that. Um, but other than that, it wasn't especially difficult uh, for the players. It wasn't especially difficult for me to run it was just i would forget about an npc here or there mm-hmm. um but it was a lot of fun and uh um the the one thing i think it did help to cement is uh in contrast to tyranny of the of dragons 
Um, I think Out of the Abyss was a lot more instructive towards sometimes you got to run. And it was mm-hmm. helpful to like get people into the mindset of like, there's a big giant two headed demon lord. You're gonna run from that. Like, right. don't even try to fight it. Um, and I think previous editions of D and D and and its offshoots have been maybe less instructive about that, where uh, people get stuck in a rut of like, nope, we have to fight this adult red dragons. And no, right. no, you don't. You can run from it. Um, and that was really helpful for uh, a lot of the rest of the game because. I think that's really where they go into the hard mode or kind of what the the idea was is that um, you don't fight everything and it would be silly to do that. Um, and you, you can fight a lot of the things you run into, but there's um, there's there's a lot of sneaking. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of stealth missions. Patrick, what was your experience um, running this adventure? Let's see. It was my first D&D adventure, um, save for, I think I did one or two little one-shots, mm-hmm. but um, the people that I uh, recruited for it, that's sort of how I sold it to people as I recruited them into this, <laughs> um, I did a lot of research, and that was back when uh, I had used Facebook to like sort of gather other people's like uh, ideas about it. Um, I would say going into Out of the Abyss up to level eight, maybe it's a it's a fantastic experience. It's around the time when you get to level level like ten, I think. Because I'm honestly, I like to level my car- my players up very quickly. I'm just that kind of gracious DM that <laughs> uh, likes to give them things, show them things, and then, as we said before, show them the big giant adult red dragon. Why is that here? Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like Out of the Abyss for me is more about um, it's it's let less about slaying things. It's an adventure that is more about really understanding the dichotomy of the Underdark, why it is the way it is, and immersing yourself in that uh, culture and habitat. Like, Mm. that's... uh, I I wish I knew. One of the writers for Out of the Abyss uh, mentioned it was a lot like writing... Uh, like an Alice in Wonderland mm-hmm. uh, adventure for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think they they very clearly and intentionally put a lot of Alice in Wonderland sort of analogous stuff in this adventure. Um, in fact, I, I've, I've been thinking about that very specifically recently because some people have made similar remarks about The Wild Beyond the Witchlight and that there's some Alice in Wonderland sort of in there. And there is... Um, but I always try to remind people, yeah, but if you pay really close attention, there's also a lot of Wizard of Oz in the Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Um, you know, there, there's the, the, the guides are, are, you know, a scarecrow and, uh, a, a, a tin man and a, and a dandelion, dandelion, like a living flower thing. Right. And so, um, uh, and, and yeah, no, it, it has a lot of wizard and there's, hot air balloons and you start in a carnival and all that kind of stuff. So um, Alice in Wonderland 
is a, a trope that has been gone to uh, in D&D Adventures. Uh, but I feel like the, the, the analogy is more intentionally done in this adventure and out of the abyss than in which light. I also find like, it's less about if you fall into combat, it's because the players chose to do it. There's so many opportunities for the players to like, there's so many, like a little mini adventures they can have. Like they learn how to slide down spider webs in a giant cavern and you don't necessarily need to have a combat encounter with that. It's it's a more creative way mm. to use the rest of the character sheet uh, than uh, than than what I was expecting out of most D and D adventures. Okay, yeah, that was that. I mean, that was not necessarily my experience with the adventure, but I think I may have been in a you know you're in the underdark it's dangerous how, how do we represent dangerous in D? we have lots of fights right and so that might have been my mindset going into it and so um so it was a lot of combat uh and that's that's group it. to group um right. i had as i said like three different groups i ran this with and it's it it, it you could vary each encounter differently mm-hmm. uh to attune to the players and their goals absolutely yeah. So, so yeah, uh, I've talked a little bit about my experience running it, um, but I, because I mashed it up with other things, I actually used the opening from um, a different adventure for the campaign, but still had them in the Underdark dealing with all of this, dealing with the, the Demon Lords, um, uh, and, 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 you know, it also solved some of the potential pitfalls for the adventure that I think Ish had alluded to. The, you know, uh, the adventure as written, you you escape the drow prison of Velkenvelve um, without your equipment and with a, a cadre of, I don't know, a dozen NPCs or more. Like, there's a lot of God, NPCs. It's, it's about almost a dozen. Yeah, and, and, they, and they're not just NPCs. Like, it's not like, you know, you're in a place and you meet a bunch of NPCs to interact with. It, they, they come with you. And so they're with you, theoretically, for a big chunk of the first half of the book. Um, and, and I know, I remember at the time, the early reviews were like, yeah, and, and that's tricky. Like, I don't want to DM 12 DMPCs, right? That's not that's exhausting and hard to keep track of and and they lose meaningfulness really fast. I solved that problem by not doing Velkenvelve. So I threw those NPCs in but just like <laughs> the handful that were really interesting to me, like um the the Mykonid stool. Uh, I, I really liked stool. My players hated stool, but I liked him, so what? I put him in there. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, I don't know why. My players, at least the That's one... So I sort of had uh, stool um, build an affinity for one particular PC, and that PC, like, for whatever reason, any time... An NPC sort of, sort of imprinted on that character, he just hated them and wanted them to go away. <laughs> right? But he also recognized that, like, Stool's an innocent, and you can't be mean to Stool. So the best way to get rid of Stool is to get Stool where Stool wants to go, <laughs> and then he'll leave you al- leave me alone, right? Mm-hmm. And I think out of all the uh, the uh, I call them jailbreak uh, NPCs, out of all of them, Stool's probably the most useful. Yeah, I mean, Stool Stool is useful, uh, and and Stool is I don't know. 
I find Stool to be really cute. Uh, I made it a point that every time Stool walked, Stool walked with a little bit of a waddle and it squeaked. Squeak, 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 squeak <laughs> every time he, he moved around because I thought it was cute. Uh, no, Stool, Stool was fun. And then and that leads them to Neverlight Grove. And Neverlight Grove is, is a re- like one of my favorite little locations in the adventure. It's a, a myconid. And for those who don't know, myconids are mushroom people. So it's a myconid village, but some of them They're have funny been, guys. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but some of them have been um, corrupted by the presence of Zugtmoy, the demon queen of fungus and so there's sort of a an internal fungal civil war going on um and stool is involved in it and you can actually it's 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 theoretically one of your first opportunities to run into a demon lord um and not fight but like oh look that's a demon lord peace (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) get out of there so um but but that's a really fun location, and so I did that. And the other NPC I really enjoyed um, bringing in was the is, what's his name? It's the gelatinous cube. Is it Glabagool? Is that the name? Glabagool, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I I took inspiration. I I forget who described it to me, but um, I think I took inspiration from somebody. I don't think this is part of the adventure, but I made sure that there was a skeleton floating around in Glabagool that Glabagool could like manipulate to like gesture at them. And, and, <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? that's so smart. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed Glabagool. It, both of those NPCs have a tendency to be a little obnoxious in terms of combat because they're slow. Uh, you know, the, the, the PCs are trying to move quickly and both of them are like, okay, we're coming. (laughs) We'll be there soon. (laughs) When the actual block of text for this creature tells you your travel time will be delayed by like a day, every other day that you travel with them, it's, you're, you're being given a hard wink. Well, and that's one of the other things that so so all of the NPCs I knew to be wary of, and so I think those are the only two I remember introducing for the first half of the adventure, because um, those seemed cool and fun and interesting to me. Um, all the others I just ignored because they didn't start in Velk and Velv, so I didn't need to have a bunch of other prisoners. Um, the other thing that I wasn't expecting to be an issue that ended up becoming a bit of a thing is travel. Um, mm. The the adventure involves a lot of moving from point A to point B in the Underdark with nothing, no events that happen in between except random encounters. And and I don't know, I'm, I, I looked at all that and it's like, well, I can't just, I don't feel like I can skip the random encounters because they're in the Underdark. It's supposed to be dangerous. Right, if, if low-level PCs in the Underdark shouldn't be there, and one way you communicate that is to make it dangerous because there's lots of things trying to kill you. Um, but thirty plus days, sixty days, I think at one point uh, or more of just rolling up random encounters. Like I had an entire session of the campaign that was just random encounters while traveling. Um, that's not awesome. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, either of you had had that issue uh, running it as well. Um, I mean, what one way that I really started to to deal with it is like really just truncating things, and you know sometimes 
sometimes it just ended up being a narrated random encounter where it's like, oh, you run into this really interesting thing, but there's no mm-hmm. real way to interact with this. So let me just tell you about it and then we'll move on. Right. Maybe it'll add to the story. Or, you know, I would purposefully make random encounters that might be like on paper, this is a combat, and then turn it into something that's not a combat just so that it wouldn't be bogged down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, really just trying to make trying to make the random encounter combats uh, at least try to be meaningful or just have fewer of them uh, when possible. But uh, given that it was me, at least on the first run-through, brand new to 5th edition and kind of brand new to that style of game, really, mm-hmm. uh, just doing big travel, because I, I almost never do that. Like, I'll do... One random encounter. I think there's like an uh, what is it? Um, giant in the playground. Like uh, what is it? Order of the stick uh, comic about how like there's only ever one random encounter between point A to point B because anything more be would be boring. Um, but yeah, prior to that, that's how I would always do it. But I think there's something to be said about making travel meaningful and just not letting the the group think that's like oh, it doesn't matter if we're traveling halfway around the world. We need to like actually feel that this is a journey. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think I've altered my play style just a little bit since then. So what? What? How would you handle that now? Or how do you? You you are running it now. So how are you going to handle it now? Uh, I, what I what I'm trying to do is to kind of curate it a little bit more. And where I might do random encounters, uh, like in the past, I might just do it ad hoc at the table, like most people do. Um, I might try and actually like plan out this kind of um, like menu of options to be able to plug in. And so I'm not just going to railroad the players and say, okay, you're going to do one, two, and three today. It could be like, well, no, what feels right with the way that the group is going? Let's add a little bit of randomness into it and uh, just kind of have these kind of set pieces that I want to introduce and if it feels like there's place for like a truly random encounter that just comes out of nowhere, I still want to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But at least it'll happen. Um, I guess I, I don't know if organically is the right word, but like in a way that just feels like it's not um, a complete like out of nowhere left field. Like, and all of a sudden here's twelve bullets. Right. What Although- do you think? Yeah, what that's do you think actually about weird. Travel? I've never encountered a. I'm so surprised. Why aren't there any bullets in the Underdark? <laughs> this entire <laughs> book has no one. <laughs> it's a good point. Well, <laughs> um, it's interesting that you like say how you try to make things like form organically, especially with random encounters. Mm. Um, I've always had sort of a I love them, I hate them. Uh, because they promise like so much. Like even you might not be expecting what comes up if you uh, trust the dice to like decide like what what sort of event is going to flummox uh, you, these people you love and care about. Hopefully, um, but the way I've always tried to run uh, games for. D and D, I feel like I want to because I come from uh, from uh, Mouse Guard, mm-hmm. and Mouse Guard is a game that is very intensely focused on character motivation 
and idealism. So when it came down to travel and out of the abyss, I tried to limit... Uh, I really tried to limit it to the characters. Right. If the players had any, like, you know, lore or they managed to roll a really good history, I would tell them about the, you know, guess what? Don't you want to go to Menzo's bar? <laughs> um, they would say, no, please. And that's actually closer than some of the the places you can go there, level one. Right. It's kind of scary. Um, but what I, uh, what I really intentionally did, and I really wish Out of the Abyss did this in the book, but... Because it's set up so perfectly. You have these NPCs in jail, um, and each of them has some kind of tie, uh, not only because of the uh, the cultures they hail from, and uh, for some of them, del- the delusions that they are plagued by. Um, a lot of them could have input on where the players might go, because we have to remember... Um, as these characters are moving through the Underdark, they're they're moving to survive. And some of these uh, NPCs might have different ideas on what is the best way to survive in the Underdark. Is mm-hmm. it to uh, go to, number one, this always wins. This is always the first thing that the players do. I'll tell you what the players do if you run out of the Abyss. They're going to go to um, uh, the Grove because... Poor Stool is lost. He doesn't know why he's here. He misses home. And that's just going to break any player's heart. They're going to go to Neverlight Grove first. I almost guarantee it. But it's important to note what the other characters want to do. Because you have, like, uh, you have uh, Bupido... Uh, he could get you the grackle stug. It's one of the first things he wants to tell tell you guys to go do because mm-hmm. you know that's civilization. Like we have to go somewhere where we can actually, you know, stay out of these uh, dirty wilds. He has obviously less than advantageous motivations, but um, it's also just like you could also go to Blingdenstone because you mm-hmm. have what three um, deep gnomes. And not only that, two of them uh, have a secret that actually ties in very well to the drama going down in Blingdenstone. And that has been some of my favorite moments is when the players finally reach um, somewhere that they feel at least there's like some sense of like civility that has been carved out of the rock it's 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 harrowing it's like their hope is like shattered and ripped out from them in the uh, wake of what's going on down in blingdenstone with were rats with uh one of the uh princes the goo boy the bad goo boy i can't remember his name i'm sorry uh jewy blacks yeah oh i always saw i always said jubilex I know, I did the same thing. I I learned a lot of, uh, I I was able to clarify a lot of my pronunciation um, by by playing this adventure and forcing myself to figure out Jewablex and and Zugtmoy and, um, you know, Gracklestug and... and You know, Frazer Blue. Frazer Blue, yeah. Frazer Blue. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's the answer that mm-hmm. I really give is that if you want to run out of the abyss or an adventure like it, you use the pieces that are there to forge not a path that you're going to force your players on, but a path that branches with the different characters that your players mm-hmm. are going to be interacting with. Yeah, And, and, and they and want the- to go one place, they have reasons to do it, and... It's up to the players to convince them to go to this other place sometimes. And the large team of NPCs helps drive that kind of of story of, hey, here's here's half a dozen places you could go. And some of them want to go some places and some of them want to go other places. And some of them are like there's a – was it a drow is one of the prisoners that's infected by the corrupted spores of the Vikanids? Yes. And so so it's it's a character who's connected to the Neverlight Grove story, but but you don't even necessarily know that from the game. I try my best to keep Silas alive until that moment. Yeah. So it can be a hard reveal when they uh yeah. get to Aram my coast. So yeah, no, it is it's an interesting and although it is it is a little bit I can see how from a player's perspective, after going to a couple locations, it's a little bit frustrating to be like, okay, well, we just want to get out of here. So we'll say what they, this NPC says first and we'll go to, to Blingdenstone. And, oh, that didn't work out. We didn't find a way out that way. Let's go to Grackleston. Oh, that didn't – let's go over to Neverland. And you, it's like – Let's just travel hundreds of miles all over the Underdark, and all we really need to do is go up. You know, later on, getting in and out of the Underdark is is a breeze. Uh, you know, but uh, isn't there a druid we can hire? To right. Just can cast, we, what is it like? It, it, uh, it gets a little it. bit uh, uh, frustrating. Uh, let's say on the player side to constantly be like, "All right, let's follow this lead." Nope, surprise. <laughs> so, um, that's. That's an opportunity, I feel like, to not make the players' lives difficult, but to just reveal to them how uh, the Underdark operates. Mm-hmm. Um, there are earthquakes. There are things like, I don't know, bullets. Making caves <laughs> Swarms and of bullets. Yes, a whole flock. Um, <laughs> there there are different ways that this this the Underdark works that sort of keeps it keeps its like roads changing and i sometimes love that because that's solved by the dark lake almost immediately um and that's why shushar becomes one of the most uh iconic characters i i role play for people is because it's this beautiful koatoa he's this wonderful flabby fish fish man (laughs) he's completely happy he's peaceful he's a pacifist he doesn't believe in violence um, he meditates. He has a very good chakra, and um, I feel as though getting him to be their boatman when they get to the Dark Lake, it becomes uh, like their one-way ticket to. Oh, thank God, we don't have to spend our days trudging along, or mm-hmm. in fact, like uh, traveling by boat. Probably you can narrow down your uh, random encounters to stingrays attack us. Mm. Yeah. No. Uh, the the like I said the the thing that really stood out to me that I didn't expect the the first thing that stood out to me that I didn't expect was the 
days and days and days and days of nothing but random encounters while you're traveling. Like it is probably and, – and thing is like I've had this conversation with, with different people a lot um, about random encounters and how you can make them engaging and interesting and, and they make become part of the story and whatever. Yeah, they can. But there's in total hundreds of days of travel with random yeah. encounters uh, and um, there is no random encounter if, list that can be that interesting for that many days. That's if you follow through on the rule book. If you follow the rules as – I feel like it's become more lax uh, as 5th edition has gone on that – you can adjust the adventure uh, mm-hmm. however it suits your your fun style, sure. um, and obviously, I did not do. I don't even. I don't even think I kept that much track of time of how long the characters right. were going through the Underdark. I just uh, saw these cool maps and locations that the players could explore earn some magic items and uh, right. develop their characters in. And yeah. I would usually jump straight to those uh, or do like some like fun skill checks, like the, the, the dark lake. Right. Um, there's an earthquake. You have to paddle your boat or else it'll get smashed by falling rocks. That was outstandingly terrifying because, yeah. you know, now it's a swimming uh, obstacle and you have to get another boat and, Somebody might drown, especially somebody who could have, I don't know, talked to the people in Blingdenstone. And there's just, like, so many things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. I feel like as a dungeon master, you really need to weigh... Um, you really need to weigh what kind of obstacles are you going to enforce uh, in any published adventure. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can look at the story and follow the story's tread um, and where the players can have, I guess not like a guiding hand, but they have impact. I, de- I generally want to get my characters um, helping the players to get to the place where they will have the most impact. And if there's any, like, meat in between, um, I gristle it down. I beat that thing with a hammer until sure. it forms, like, a beautiful single session of we have to go into this weird temple. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a goo boy there. Goo boy is good. <laughs> you mean the pudding king? Oh, oh that's pudding a king. one, right? <laughs> oh yeah, Glab. That was Glabagul. Oh, we yeah. talked about um, mm-hmm. the the pudding king. That's a bad goo boy. That's, that's <laughs> not a good boy. Go bad. Yeah. No. So I I don't know. I've I've been playing D&D since 2nd edition, and I have a lot of experience with the, the lore of the game and whatever. And so it was important to me that, like, travel through the Underdark has to be hard. It has to be dangerous. And I needed to portray that. My ultimate solution, after having one entire session of nothing but random encounters, which was kind of not awesome, uh, my, my solution after that was montage. Uh, I would pre-roll a hundred different days of travel with per random encounters and I'd have them on there and then it would just be like, okay, so you're going from here to there. It's going to take this many days. Let me tell you what happened along the way. Wasn't that fun? And now you're there. But that way they get this sense of like, this is dangerous that I may have even had like consequences. Like, hey, somebody needs to make this 
con save or they've picked up a mad or wisdom save or they're mad, they've gone mad or they picked up this disease or whatever, right? Uh, and so th- there would be consequences for those encounters, but we wouldn't play them out, especially the the combat encounters. We wouldn't play them out because those take the longest amount of time. If it was a role playing encounter, we could we could have a quick role play and 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 then move on. I'm actually really curious. Um... How many magic users did you have? Because one of the biggest obstacles for players, especially people new to tabletop role-playing games, was the idea that they have to take a big nap to get their uh, slots back. And the Underdark is not a good place to nap. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so what were your like party like sizes and what oh, like classes were the most useful? in your It was game? a long time ago, but... I want to say, I know we had a bard, and I know we had a sorcerer. Um, and I know once you hit a certain level, um, and this is part of why the montage thing made a lot more sense, because like the challenges of the random encounter tables weren't going to really be a, a, a life, a, a, a life or death threat to them. Um, and and once you hit a certain level, and you can cast a, a tiny hut, then then. Getting a long rest becomes moot as well. <laughs> yeah. Good berries. Yeah. Changed everything. Because then why eat mushrooms? Right. But I, th- I had a group of, I think there were, f- well, so so this is my Raleigh group. And we had, I think we had six-ish players in the group. But we're all adults and people had jobs and families and whatever. So we had a sort of a standing rule of like, if you can't come, you can't come, whatever. So it was a constant rotating group from out of those six. Usually we had four, maybe five uh, of the group there at any given week. Um, and, and yeah, so there were a handful of spellcasters. But we, we, we'd been most of us have been playing for a long time. And so the idea of resting to get spell slots back was a non-issue for us. Um, having run it three times, there have been wildly diverse groups in each one. Um, usually like one or two spellcasters, almost always a paladin. Uh, if anyone was, I don't want to say smart enough, but, uh, fortunate enough to play a ranger, obviously that made things so much easier. I don't, I just don't think like people equated ranger equals good in wilderness, but when they did, or when they, when they just happened to want to play a ranger, it, it uh, made things so much easier for the entire group, mm. as rangers do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately um, that might be another kind of vector of why it was like D&D in hard mode, is that the, the Underdark is just unwelcoming, and getting rest is um, it's it's difficult at best and deadly at worst. Like deciding to to sit down somewhere for any amount of time could invite danger, oh, yes. um, and it just depends on the dungeon master and how mean they want to be, and not because they're being jerks, but because that's how the Underdark is. But well, Wizards in Fifth Edition has not been afraid to tell get tell stories where it's hey. We're going to send low-level PCs into the places that the lore says low-level PCs should never go, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's you're going to start at level one in the Underdark or you're going to be by level three – Running around Avernus, because why the hell not? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the the kind of place that third level PCs should never be hanging out, but we're going to do a whole adventure there. Um, so, so yeah, so so they haven't been uh, averse to doing that, and I think they've largely pulled it off. Like they're they make them challenging, but 
enjoyable, right? Um, oh. Especially in Avernus once you get the get silver weapons for the PCs. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on, uh, kind of going back to the idea of like, why are these people in the Underdark once they get the the, tr- the ticket out of there? Why would they want to come back? Um, I mean, and this your mileage may vary on this, but uh, one thing I started to do was pick one demon lord per player character, start giving them real bad dreams related to whatever those mm-hmm. demon lords were doing at a given time. And basically through the narrative, letting them know, it's like you could go back into the surface and let the Underdark deal with this, but you're going to keep having these bad dreams and there might be further consequences down the road. The best part about that is once you've kind of associated that demon lord with that player character, it's the perfect setup of like, all right, here's the big battle royale. By, by the way, that guy you've been having dreams about this entire time, you play him. And I've, I've, I don't think I've run that encounter once where people didn't have a blast doing it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a hard time convincing my players to go back down, but maybe that was, I mean, again, I was mashing it up with all these other adventures, so they hadn't just spent an entire half of a campaign stuck in the Underdark, unable to escape, right? So it wasn't as onerous to ask them to go back down. The The trick about having them go back down, though, that that does drive me a little crazy about this adventure, you know, one, <laughs> one of the difficult things for a DM in this adventure is running all those PCs in the first half. <laughs> and then you get out... And you're going back down and there's this like conclave. And as you're doing the conclave uh, in, in Gauntel Grimm, there's uh, there, you know, you're going through all these little tasks and diplomatic missions and whatever. And the more successful you are, the more support you get going back down. It's like I traded a dozen NPCs for a small army of 60 NPCs. And now I have to deal with like this, so, the entire adventure I'm dealing with. No, no, they didn't laugh. <laughs> I was quick. Like it was often when I did my cam, my my montages of my travel montages yep. or whatever. It was like, okay, well, you had this encounter, this encounter, and this encounter, and oh, you lost a few of the a few soldiers along the way, just so I could get rid of all those NPCs. <laughs> I feel like that's probably the the weakest part of the book is going back into the Underdark. And uh, bringing all your enemies into one room and also getting uh, uh, that's I here's what I would like it to be like. I would rather like these become like tokens. Like, I don't think these people following your characters who have very little reputation uh, to speak of, mm. um, depending on, you know, things that they have done up or below ground. Um, I would rather they have more mechanical uh, addition. Like, like I feel like you could spend like a patrol to dis- to get rid of a, a random encounter in like an area that you're trying to go to. Um, but again, that's kind of callous. Right. And one, I I have one solution that uh, succeeded um, in solving this question. And it is what I call no party mode. And you can only play no party mode in Out of the Abyss. And that is because no party mode is the only adventure that already has the player characters in it. Okay. <laughs> Chapter one of Velkin Velve. Don't let me you don't you don't let the players make any any characters. 
You just show them the list of NPCs, the jailbreak NPCs. And they're playing and you those say, You say, pick one. Sure. And Except for my I, players who were, would revolt exactly. about, about playing pre-gens, you know? <laughs> exactly. And your situation is very interesting because I think it was in the, the Storm Giant's Thunder where they actually had a section in the appendix about bringing adventures together. Uh-huh. And it really does make sense that... Out of the Abyss is actually just two adventures in one. You just have to have a third adventure to put in between them. Mm. So that's that, that's that's my answer besides yeah. no part. Well, in my case, they were largely, at least for the first half of Out of the Abyss, they were in and out of the Abyss off and on uh, over and over again. Because uh, they were running off to Dasaran and my setting, it was the Dasaran Island, not the Dasaran Valley, to go to go fight off the, the elemental cults from Princes of the Apocalypse uh, and deal with that. And so that, you know, and then they do that for a while. And, oh, 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 there's something going on in the Underdark again. The, the, the I don't know, the demon lords are, are causing trouble. We need to get back down there and deal with something, you know. So they'd kind of go back and forth for the beginning of it. It wasn't so onerous to get out of. It wasn't like a constant series of red herrings trying to get out of the Underdark uh, for them. It's just I had to find motivations to keep sending them back down. Um, and some of the locations we just skipped, right? Uh, and that was fine too. We spent a lot more time in the second half of the book. Um, mm. and, and again, I, I used the montage to get rid of a lot of those NPCs and whatever. Uh, basically, I used them like that token you talked about, right? You don't have to spend anything. You don't have to lose anything uh, in, in this fight. We'll just spend some of these these soldiers and they'll slowly disappear and it'll be fine. It's not very heroic, but it gets you from point A right. to point B. And there was a handful of them that got there when they, you know, they got to Mantle Dareth and, and there was – there was still a few left, and so they got to and and the the shield guardian. They did really like the shield guardian that they picked up. Um, that's the big automaton, right? And oh they, yeah. They, they named they named him Big Bob, uh, and he just sort of followed them around everywhere. And and it, he did he barely ever did anything. Like at one point, they were traveling to the other side of the ocean, and and. and but Big Bob couldn't go for whatever reason. Wouldn't wouldn't the weight of Big Bob wouldn't allow him to go on uh, on the I don't know airship or whatever they were flying on, and so they just said, "All right, Big Bob, start walking that way." And so Big Bob just walked along <laughs> the bottom of the ocean, and you know, three months later, caught up to him. You know? <laughs> so, oh my god! <laughs> so, so now there's legends uh, of this giant automaton that just walks across the land doing nothing and ignoring everybody. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that was the only one that they really enjoyed. Um, I really, I really liked, um, cause in the second half is when you start running into and actually dealing with some of the demon lords. I found that for the most part, the demon lords were not, they were not the challenge I, I wish they would have been. I think the stat blocks are underpowered. Yeah. Um, and so I, I got some tips mostly from, from Mike Shea, um, about, bumping them up and I still use that advice to this day on how to take my just the big bads right not every monster but the big bads uh, that I want to be a real challenge I, I really increase the difficulty using just a handful of tips that I got from him um, but but one of the things I did because I had just been listening to um, one of the Dresden Files books um, while I was getting to the, the Mantle Dareth part with Frazer Blue and so there's this whole thing where Frazer Blue is in the, the like trapped in a gym or whatever, right? Um, and there's a chance that they could break the gym and and whatever. Um, 
and and they did, and they managed to actually get rid of Frazier Blue. He wasn't a, 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 a an overt threat anymore. But I was inspired by this thing that happens in the Dresden Files, where sure Frazier Blue is gone, but one of you in the process of getting rid of him touched that gem, and now is mm. the now the shadow of of Frazier Blue is in your mind, constantly tempting you, offering you power, teaching you how to do things. And um, you know, that's brilliant because yeah. I actually did want to ask you guys what you did with with Mr. Blue. Yeah, um, that worked because... really well. In fact, Frazer Blue is like the only demon lord at the end of the campaign that was still in the prime material world because he was hiding inside somebody's head. All the other demon lords were banished. So, yeah. No, it worked really well. Um, Ish, what about you? Um, I mean, again, it varied, uh, but I had one game where they got the gem. They knew that they weren't supposed to touch it because they had just seen everyone else go crazy every time. And so they just mage handed it into a bag of holding and it did not get seen again until the very end there were other ones where i had some fun where like it was it was jumping from person to person mm-hmm. i think at one point it had gotten stolen again by someone in um was it mantle dareth uh and then they some they just took it like far into the underdark and nobody saw it again again until it came back in uh and then the third game i actually had somebody bust the the gem open and then Frazier Blue came out and got to do stuff. Um, mm. And that, I think that one was the most interesting one of all, but it was it was different in each time, and I can't say that one was better than the other, but um, except I guess the one where it just went into the bag of holding was boring, but like you've got those groups that are so paranoid about everything that they're just right. going to take the safest route. Um, and that's, that's good, but I, sometimes I have fun with the ones that are incautious and just decide to throw their caution to the wind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're uh, we're we've sort of touched on uh, two topics. Uh, one is how we portray the uh, the demon lords and their activities, um, but I feel like we ought to also uh, tread on how how this book tried to introduce madness and mm-hmm. mental illness into mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I, I guess, what do you guys think about this, this attempt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so this adventure mostly followed the, you know, the, the rules for madness and what have you in the DMG, right? Um, it added to it, like there were specific madnesses for for your seeing a specific demon lord or whatever. Um, I may, I, I guess, I didn't think about it as much as I should have. But where I did think about it, I tried to make it very clear that this is not mental illness. This is a magical, a magically induced madness. This is more of a, a Lovecraftian horror sort of mm. gone and gone and gone crazy sort of thing, not. Uh, a depiction of actual mental illness. Yeah, and I feel like that is something I've encountered, uh, like mistaking the the attempts in this book to uh, introduce the madness element. Mm-hmm. Um, some people misconstrue it uh, as you know they're making uh, they're gamifying. Uh, you know, real the real 
illnesses that people suffer from. Mm-hmm. And so far, it it has been... I've been able to distinguish between some of the characters. Like, there's a character who believes that he's a beautiful elven prince from uh, a wonderful kingdom on the surface um, when he's clearly a Quagoth. And that's one of the effects of the demons that are plaguing the Underdark. But I also feel like there are just like other characters that are thrown in there with no real... uh, You're told that they have been stricken with madness, but uh, more often than not, it's something that turns them into a a combat encounter eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there's one guy who's just a cannibal. Um... Uh, that's it doesn't tell you how to introduce us to the characters only that he is in this uh, underdark community and he's probably eating people mm-hmm. and there are just just moments where they don't use these characters that they have granted this madness to um, but I do appreciate that they gave like a table of clearly like Eldritch horror-inspired madness Um, instead of uh, some of the stuff that I was questioned about when I told people about this cool, fun, underdark game that made your characters go insane sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, I like that a lot of them were very specifically, like, under each demon lord, there is a specific list of madness that you can gain that's associated with them, and then it's very much, like, thematically tied to the the portfolio of that demon lord rather than trying to emulate real world mental illness you know oh so well and i might just give a boring answer to this question but um once the group learned lesser restoration <laughs> it kind of began uh, yes. it matter and right. so at, like I, I i kind of muddled with it the first play around and then after that i'm like it doesn't it doesn't honestly matter um, there were some interesting things where instead of madness, it would be like these little secrets that would develop between the characters mm-hmm. and that would kind of bubble up as conflicts. And it wasn't like you're afraid of this or you have this like, you know, this thing mimicking mental illness. It's more like you have developed a strong mistrust of this character for this reason. And that that would play out way differently because then they would role play out those those kind of moments of not trusting each other, even though like that that wasn't an issue with the players before or between the character or the, between the uh, players, but it was kind of something fun to string two people together of just being like, right. there's just something that you can't you can't uh, figure out about this person that just bugs you, and then it was it was that compulsion, it was like that magical thing that just showed distrust or like mm-hmm. gave someone a secret to, to reveal later on. And I, d- I did. The- oh, more interesting. Sorry. Yeah, I did manage, even when they learned lesser restoration, the madnesses that would oftentimes come up through the course of the, the travel montage. Cause there's random encounters that just somebody goes crazy. Um, but I would, even when they had lesser restoration, it at least oftentimes led to a fun role-playing encounter because they knew people were going mad, but in character, like on a meta level, they knew that so and so had failed a save and had gone had picked up a madness. 
Um, but in character, they were good at playing it as, yeah, but like, we don't know that they've got, that they've picked up this badness. That's unknown to us so far. So we're, we're going to, we might go three or four days before we figure out that, that they need us to cast lesser restoration on them. Uh, and so I, you know, you get one or two interesting or fun little role-playing encounters with, with each other of, Hey, what, what, wait, what did you say? What's going on? New players first meta. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so so I mean, but yeah, you're not wrong that once you get to that point and you figure out that there's this madness going on, then every time somebody asks weird, you know, hit them with a lesser restoration, and then it's a non-issue. So, unless of course uh, they're the person I put the shadow of Frazer Blue in their head, in which case uh, lesser restoration doesn't do anything, and yep. yet somehow there's still voices in their head, and nobody can quite figure that out, right? Mm-hmm. So. All right. So we've talked a lot through the adventure. Um, uh, I did. I do think it's worth noting. So, so Patrick, I know you've never gotten to the end. No. Um, with the big battle royale at the conclusion, ish, you have uh, a couple times, um, uh, and and I think that is one of the selling points of the adventure. Is this you know at the end you're going to have this giant battle royale and all of the demon lords are there. And, and and somehow you're going to fight and you're going to win and defeat the Demon Lords. Uh, how did that work out for you? Uh, so for me specifically, um, you know, it was it was pretty stuck each time of the two times that I ran it. Of mm-hmm. uh, They did the things, they gathered the materials, they did the ritual, and the Demon Lords showed up. Um, and the fights tended to be really fun, and I saw some people use those stat blocks really inventively. Um which is a shame. Like the stat blocks are not so much meant for like the players are going to fight these demon lords because that's they're not powerful enough to be a threat like on that level. But they're really fun to fight each other, and I think that's what they were designed to. Where that falls apart, it's that there's a couple of times where you have an opportunity to fight either Zugtamoy or Dewey Blex, uh-huh. um, and then I forget. There's one other thing where you actually like. Are meant to fight a demon lord, but you could you could fight uh, Yonogu and um, uh, yes, the, the Minotaur right. one. What's his name? Uh, Baphomet. Yes. Baphomet. Oh, there you go. But um, um, you get to and, see Demogorgon a couple times. Yeah, and both and, times and, you're way too low level, though. <laughs> oh yeah, goodness. But like they're they're not as fun to fight because it's kind of like well these aren't good stats, but we're just gonna contrive these situations like you see two of them fight and then you get to fight the winner or you see all of them fight and you get to fight that winner uh-huh. um and the, i mean the, the end fight so, really- so you say the stats aren't good for that why what was your experience either either you're not strong enough to fight them or they're they are and then it just kind of turns out to be a little bit disappointing yeah that like was my experience of- my experience was that that in every case when they went up against a demon lord, they won. And because I homebrewed some of it, I actually had them – they had an opportunity to and they took it – fight Orcus before the big battle royale. And my 12th level PCs took out Orcus. Yep. Right? And and, yep. it, and that's – you know, that's kind of disappointing. So – so I, I, when I, that happened, I'm like, well, that's kind of disappointing. I turned it into, yeah, but he's the demon lord of undeath and, and he hasn't – you know, they, they killed him. But then a nearby – they had made a deal with a nearby Rakshasa. So they brought Orcus uh, – the Rakshasa ate him because the Rakshasas eat people, right? Uh, but Orcus, it turned out in hindsight because I, I twisted it. Uh, Orcus 
planned all that out and did it on purpose so that while all the other demon lords were killing each other, he was hiding inside the Rakshasa and everybody thought he was gone, but he was really there the whole time. Ha 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 ha, because Orcus is smarter than us all. <laughs> so, so I fixed it in, in post, you know? So. <laughs> but you gotta live up to your name. If you can't undeath your own death, Right, really exactly, exactly. Wouldn't be the first time. But yeah, so, Are you a prince? But my, my uh, experience was that the Demon Lords tended to be way easy, way too easy to fight, which is why I took uh, Mike Shea's advice. And basically, uh, when they had a multi-attack action, I just gave them that many actions, um, you know, to do individual things. And so that meant it was, I'm going to claw, I'm going to claw, but I'm not going to use the tail, I'm going to cast a spell, you know? And, and so they got to do all kinds of cool things that way. Uh, I gave them maximum hit points because they're unique creatures. There's no reason they should have average hit points. You know, I, I upped the damage a little bit on them. And all of those things seem to do the trick pretty well. Um, and I, and to the point that I still use those same tricks. Um, I did find the Battle Royale went really well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to do it in Minzo Baranzan. Um, so I, I came up with uh, story reasons that it could happen somewhere else. And that was fine. They enjoyed that. I also one of the things that does um, make for interesting things in this adventure is that uh, you theoretically have all of the demon lords of the abyss, except for Lolf, uh, running around in the underdark. Right? The abyss is infinite, so there should be a lot of demon lords. There's not a lot of demon lords. There's a good handful of, of the really famous demon lords. And for some reason, Missing Grass, even though he's clearly the best demon lord. Um, and so I, when the Battle Royale came, I decided to up the number of demon lords significantly by pulling from Cobalt Press books. So I went to the Creature Codex and, and the Tome of Beasts and all that and pulled in a bunch of Cobalt Press demon lords as well. Enough so that my party of six players each got to play two demon lords in the big battle royale. I, I just I printed them off and I handed them the stat blocks and they each got to play two demon lords. Uh, and 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 fi- figure out which one had survived, and then we ran over, and I ran the what are the PCs doing? Well, the demon lords are killing each other. There were all these other demons and things flying around, so they were fighting those. And then at the end, okay, we finished them off. Oh look, and there's only one demon lord left that was determined by their their previous fight, and that's the demon lord they had to fight at the end. And so it came together, and it worked really well uh, for my, for my campaign. Incredible. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Um, so. We've been talking for almost an hour and ten minutes now, uh, and that's usually about uh, uh, a little over time for the end of an episode. But I thought I'd give anybody uh, a chance for any sort of last words, anything else you wanted to talk about. I think I had three things on my notes that I really wanted to talk about, and I hit them all. The, the, all the NPCs, the travel times, and the, the multi-demon demon lord battle royale at the end so i've hit all my things is there anything else that somebody wants to have a last word on uh and and mention real quick before we we wrap this up if you want to go first or sure um i just want to talk to talk about the uh what is it called in the the maze engine right and the um, oh yes so the maze engine is super chaotic super fun um can be uh, super troubling because uh, I almost ran this game three times, not because I ran it twice and then and, and then a third time to completion. Oh, I no. ran it once. I ran it like a half time where we had to start over. 
and then I ended up running it that second time. But when I was halfway through that second full full run, we ran into the maze engine. It uh, actually has an option where it sends the group all the way back to the beginning with all their stuff and memories, but then they, they show right back up in Valkenveld, literally yeah. restarting yes. the whole game. So I was like, I was almost going to tear my hair out because it was like this close to doing that. It was just this. And I was like, no, no, no way. Um, right. But that, that playthrough. I want to uh, know who was responsible. <laughs> well, it was just the maze engine. It who just Wizards of the Coast put that oh. in there. Oh, no, no. I, uh, oh, I, no that, I I'm certain that was Green Ronin. I'm going to blame Steve Kinson. I think he worked on this. <laughs> That's because that was the. I'm going to tell you right now. That was the whole premise of no party mode. Right. Well, and uh, and like, there's a part of me that like doesn't hate. Like, it's a really small percent chance that it happens, right? Uh, and there's a part of me that doesn't hate it, but I could definitely see like we've just gone through all of this. Sure, the second time going through the first half is going to be a lot faster. We know our way out. We know where to go and where not to go. We know what we need to do. It would be a little bit of a slog, but but you'd basically be have to recreate the campaign from the bones that are in the adventure and build it your, on your own if, if that happened, right? And it may be fun to do that, but it's not the adventure you thought you were running. <laughs> you know? It was no, the one you promised your players. But I mean, it's a little bit like the end of the potential end of *Rime of the Frost Maiden* too, which which has some similar uh, potential. Yes. Which I also ran twice. Um, but that's all. I well, have someday to... we'll we'll get to our our relook at *Rime of the Frost Maiden*, and you can come and talk on that too. I'm sure yeah. Sam will want to talk about it as well. Yes. So so anyway, the maze engine that almost happened. Um, the maze and, engine, and I'll say, is like the most fun and the most frustrating thing that happened in the campaign. It got rid, like they had already killed Zektamoy and Dewey Blex, and then it got rid of Baphomet and um, what and Yunogu at the same time because there's a, an effect there where it's like everything in sixty miles that doesn't belong to this plane gets sent back. Yep, that yep. was them. And so the, that's, that's that, what happened with my group. Yeah, and that kind of made that final battle a little kind of like like meager because. They had that many fewer demon lords fighting each other, but it was fine. It all ended up. Both men, you know, you aren't aren't that big of a deal, <laughs> right? You want to you want to hang out with Baphomet, you know, Now you can play Descent into Avernus, and you find out what happened to him. True, true. <laughs> Any other uh, last words from you, Patrick? Um, it's out of all the books uh, that I've uh, engaged with. And campaigns that I've run, uh, I would just get out of the abyss just to look at it and see all of the opportunities that it grants you to have a real fun time, not only with uh, the various characters or locations, but just to piece the adventure together yourself, because I feel as though Out of the Abyss is a piece of work that is not finished mm. and it's really dependent on the kind of group of players that you have the kind of dungeon master that you are and that's particularly why i love it and why i love talking about it is because it has seven potential antagonists mm -hmm. it has countless heroes non-heroes shushar the awakened the best npc ever <laughs> and it's 
it's just I, I look through it and I weep because I never get to the final part where you get to the maze engine and you could potentially have a pacifist null who watched you butcher his entire pack because he <laughs> he doesn't like going to war anymore because of the influence of Franz Oberlach. <laughs> and he's a precious baby soul and I love him. Um, it's just a game, uh, a, a game book that I would read just for the sake of, oh, that would be cool if this happened mm-hmm. and finding a way to piece it together into a plot that you can run your players through and have absolute delight with it. You know, um, you, when you talk about how there's, there's still a lot of work for a DM to do on this bo- adventure, it reminded me what they, the designers meant when they said that this is D and D on hard mode, they were specifically talking about DMing on hard mode. Um, not that it was a particularly difficult adventure, but it is a particularly difficult adventure. to. It, it is more for more DMs who are willing to put in a little more work. I don't know that I believe that holds up uh, now. I think there are harder adventures to, to DM that they've published at this point. But at that point, I don't think that was true. Because uh, at that point, Tyranny of Dragons was out and Princess of the Apocalypse were, were out. And those were both fairly straightforward adventures to DM uh, compared to this one. So This is our game to go to recess with. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to call that the end of the episode. I want to thank our panel tonight. Uh, Patrick, where should people go on the internet if they want more Patrick? Oh, my God. Well, my Twitter is on the forefronts. And uh, I frequently play uh, the wonderful game GTARP uh, on the TSRP server. And out of all the GTA servers that I could feel safe on, uh, it's that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a majestic time. Uh, I love role play, and it's a great community. But I'm also a writer. I'm also a horse groom. So if you want to see horses that I take care of for a living, or you want to see some of the things that I write, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, again, on the forefronts. For F-O-R-E. F-O-R-E. There you go. Uh, Ismail, where should people go if they want more of you? Yeah, so um, people can find me on DriveThruRPG under my given name, Ismail Alvarez, or they can find me on Twitter and Twitch under my... uh, Assumed name of Elven Wizard King, all one word, spelled just like it sounds. There you go. Uh, and I do a lot of tweeting and I do a lot of twitching. Um, that sounds like a condition, but it's not. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've actually started doing uh, my uh, eight-game planning on Mondays at 7.30 Mountain Standard Time-ish. And then I do some uh, video game playing on Tuesdays about the same time. Right on. Uh, And I also want to say thank you to all of you out there who support us as patrons by going to patreon.com slash the dome show and and, uh, helping us out with as little as a dollar a month to to help me pay our our bills. If you want to contact the show, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. If you want to find the show on Twitter, it is at the Tome Show. Although I run that one too, so they're both kind of me. Um, and that is episode 355, where we defeated all the demon lords again. 
in this episode of I'm on the wall.